0: Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas.
1: If science emerged in the 20th century with a great sense of confidence, I think it's very quickly going to have to change its posture. I think to be a theoretical scientist in the 1980s means that you must be prepared to wear the garment of humility.
0: Tonight we present the third and final programme, in our series, Religion and the New Science.
2: What significance does the world have to God? That really is one of the most interesting questions I uh, can ask my theological students, because most of them have not thought about it, and it's difficult. What significance does the world have to
0: God? In the first program of this series, we examine some of the ways in which the classical science of Newton and Descartes drove a wedge between nature and humanity. Last week, we turned to the emergence of a new science with a new image of nature. Tonight's program attempts to draw out some of the philosophical and theological implications of this new science. Should science make a difference to theology, or theology a difference to science? Religion and the New Science is written and presented by David Cayley.
3: The other day my seven-year-old daughter came home and reported that three of her friends had told her that they didn't believe in God. She seemed more than anything mystified that they would say this, and afterwards it occurred to me that this was because it seemed to her foolish for them to try and make up their minds about something they couldn't possibly know. But her friends, I think, are more typical than she is. Certainly whether I believed in God was a question I asked myself growing up, And the fact that I did so now seems to me to have been the origin of much of my unhappy perplexity about religion. The problem, I think, is in the question itself. It doesn't ask, do I know something that could be called God, or have I experienced something that could be called God? There's just that blunt, aggressive challenge, do I believe in God? It's as if God were set on the other side of some great chasm with no natural bridge in between. We can only cross by a leap of faith. Let's go back to my daughter for a moment. I suspect that for her the idea of God is primarily rooted in an experience of nature, and I think this is what was missing for me. God and nature were separate categories, the one the province of religion, the other the province of science. How this came to be is a story which goes back to the very origins of what we call modern science, to the days of Galileo and Newton, when science was trying to get free of the authority of theology. The result was a kind of informal arrangement that science would investigate the mechanism of nature, theology, our relationship to God. This left humanity torn. On the one hand, we were a part of nature. On the other, we had a divine destiny, The break was not absolute, but it was progressive for as science kept increasing its ability to explain nature in purely mechanical terms. So Christianity was forced to retreat to the margins where it told a purely supernatural tale of our fall and redemption. This process can be traced out in the field of cosmology. Today, we use the term to describe the study of the history of the physical universe without reference to its meaning. But once, cosmology meant the study of the universe from the standpoint of its meaning for humanity. Stephen Toulman is the author of Return to Cosmology. Cosmology
4: is concerned not just with the history and workings of nature. Cosmology from the beginning is concerned with the history and workings of nature as a place that human beings live in. It's not just a question of what the structure and history of the universe has been. It's a question of in what respects the structure and history of the universe can be perceived as being the appropriate structure and history for it to be the world into which God placed human beings. Now, traditionally, when I say traditionally, I mean before Descartes, uh, traditionally, there were a lot of different ways in which one could answer that question. From Descartes on, however, to the extent that natural philosophy became mechanical, there was a split made between nature and humanity, and it was very hard for human affairs to be perceived as part of the world of natural phenomena. And therefore, cosmology came to be equated, so to say, with astronomical history, and the other side dropped out.
3: The point of tonight's program, as of Stephen Toulmin's book, is to try and demonstrate that today this other side is dropping back in again. This is a result of changes which are now beginning to be evident in branches of both science and Christian theology. In what follows, I'll examine them both, beginning with science. To understand the changes in science today, it is necessary first to go back to the 17th century, when Francis Bacon first used the term the new science. The old science then was the science of Aristotle, And it is worth recalling for our purposes here what the fundamentals of this science were. This is Dr. Robert Rosen, a professor in the Department of Physiology and Biophysics at Dalhousie University in Halifax.
5: Aristotle himself was basically a biologist. He's the only one of the great philosophers who was, and this colored his thought. And for him, the essence of life was intentionality, purpose. For him, science was about the why of things. He said, that is the basic function of science, is to answer the question, why? This, by the way, has disappeared uh, as a definition of science since the Newtonian revolution, been replaced by the question, how? But for Aristotle, the question was, why? And the answer to a why is, because. And Aristotle recognized that there were different and inequivalent ways of saying, because. For instance, if you want to know why a building or a statue or is what it is, it is what it is because of the material of which it's made. That's one way of answering because. It's what it is because of the plan or the blueprint according to which it was made. That's another way of answering because. It's what it is because of the labor of the uh, people who put it together according to the blueprint from the matter. That's a third way. And finally, it's what it is because somebody wanted it to be that way. It serves some function, some role. And that last, for Aristotle, was the most important. That was what he called final cause, or telos. And uh, the understanding of things in terms of final causes, that is to say intentionality or goal, uh, is called teleology. And the whole thrust of science uh, from the time of Newton onward is to try to understand things without invoking the notion of goal or function or purpose. As I say, for Aristotle, the most obvious thing about organisms was their intentionality. They were goal-seeking. They were generated uh, to uh, have goals and to try to uh, attain them. And you could not, to Aristotle, it was obviously absurd to try to understand organic, Function without the notion of telos. Dr. Rosen
3: argues that as a result of the suppression of teleology, life essentially became an anomaly within science. Life was just too complicated for the new methods of physics to comprehend.
5: One of the reasons that physics could get started the way it did was that there were certain kinds of rather simple systems which exhibited in a simple form the types of phenomena that physics really wanted to ultimately deal with. So you could have an inclined plane, or you could have a pulley, or you could have the solar system for that matter. But in biology, there is no analog of the inclined plane. The systems that you have to deal with are already extremely complicated before you can even call them alive. There is no way to get a running start, as you did in physics. to take measurements, as I say, rolling a ball down an inclined plane and seeing how the velocity depends on the slope of the plane and things of this sort. In biology, you are faced right at the beginning uh, with systems which, from a physical point of view, are incredibly complicated and complex.
3: This would prove to be the worst for biology. The simple laws of physics worked, and soon the temptation became overwhelming to try and reduce biology to physics as well. This approach was called reductionism. This is how Dr. Rosen defines it.
5: It basically asserts that there is no new physics to be learned from organisms, uh, that the traditional method of analyzing a complicated system into simpler and simpler pieces is sufficient, necessary and sufficient, for uh, answering any question in biology. Now, this is where the situation gets interesting because The closed systems, the symmetric systems, uh, which have dominated physics, are in some sense very special. Now, the traditional view has always been that um, physics provides universal laws, and biology provides us with a very, very special, inordinately special class of systems. And all we need to do is to find the way to bring the universal laws to bear on those very special systems and we will understand them completely. I think that the experience in biology has been quite otherwise. My own experience has always been quite otherwise. That uh, far from being a special case, uh, biology poses absolutely fundamental questions to the nature of physical explanation and physical description. Basically by forcing physics to deal with systems which are not so special.
3: In recent years, physics has actually begun to deal with such systems. And this points to the first great change which has taken place in science. Biology no longer represents a special case. Instead, physics and biology are converging in the study of complex natural processes. Ian Stewart is a theoretical biologist at the University of Alberta in Edmonton.
1: Let's say that from the point of view of historical development, Biology and physics have been separated in the ways that they've developed, and as we can objectively see in the character of their languages. But what's been happening in recent years is a convergence between physics and biology, been a convergence along more than one route. The first route emerges from the subject matter that they investigate, Traditionally, one of the things that separated biology and physics is that physics tended to deal with simple systems that are closed off, closed physical systems, whereas biology dealt with very complex systems of an open variety. But the modern developments have led to a concern with complex systems Systems that are, in the first place, many bodied, and so their internal act- interactions are complex. And in doing that, in forcing attention or focusing attention upon complex systems, we've encountered an unwillingness to recognize traditional distinctions between what belongs to biology and what belongs to physics. One way I've expressed this is to say that the separation of the sciences is only a matter of professorial convenience, a convenience of which nature is presumably unaware. And in its interest in complex systems, there's really very little to be gained by making any fundamental distinction between a biological, a physical, or a chemical complex system. It's the properties exhibited by complex systems in nature that is really the focus of modern attention, and with that is a very deep concern with the principles of organization that are responsible for the creation and maintenance of these complex systems. And in that way, there is a focus of attention from biology and physics on the nature of order itself, of organizational principles, so that in that sense, the fundamental problems of modern theoretical biology are also fundamental problems of theoretical physics. There's then a convergence in subject matter and outlook between physics and biology.
5: As I've said before, I think physics is going to be changed in a really profound fashion by the necessity it has to accommodate biological phenomena. One of the ways it's going to have to change is to make room for anticipation, for intentionality, all of these things that were thought to have been banned completely and forever from science by the Newtonian revolution. Now What is true is that you cannot accommodate ideas of intentionality, of telos, uh, of purpose within a Newtonian picture because it basically involves the action of the future upon the present. The whole purpose of anticipation is to project the future into the present and to cause changes in present activity so as to bring about a certain future state. And the basis for doing that is to have some kind of internal model, a predictive model of yourself and of your environment. Now, within the traditional Newtonian picture, within the quantum mechanical picture, too, you cannot have this kind of action of the future on the present. But basically, a system which does possess an internal predictive model, and which can use the predictions of that model in order to modify its present behavior. Uh, This is basically an anticipatory system. It's one which falls outside of the conventional canons of contemporary physics, whether classical or quantum or relativistic. It requires new modes of system description, new modes of system representation. And a system which does possess one or more such models uh, is practically a conscious entity. I think you would have great difficulty in distinguishing its behaviors from uh, those of a conscious being. And maybe this is the way, uh, at least I've suggested, uh, that this might be the way to characterize those material systems which are organisms from those material systems which are not. Namely the capability of generating and deploying predictive models which pull the future into the present and allow the organism to modify its present behavior on the basis of a predicted future.
3: This statement of Dr. Rosen's is a virtual manifesto for a new science, a science whose stirrings are already beginning to be felt. The scientific revolution devitalized nature in order to build up a simple system of workable laws. Today, it is once again becoming evident that nature abounds with meaning and purpose. The importance of this from my perspective in this program is that it eliminates the division between human and non-human nature which was so much a part of classical science. Nature as seen by science is no longer an alien world of blind mechanical forces. It is alive as we are and operates according to the same principles that we do. <laughs> was born in the West under the name of natural philosophy. Today, in common English, the terms science and philosophy have virtually opposite meanings. But in this century, philosophy has been creeping back into science through the back door. One of the best-known examples is in the field of quantum mechanics, where physics first came upon what appeared to be absolute limitations on human knowledge These limitations were recognized by physicists Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg in the so-called standard interpretation of quantum mechanics.
1: In classical physics, we used to talk about, and still do, about a physical reality that science investigates. In the standard interpretation of quantum mechanics, you have a system that is being observed, and you have A mode or means of making an observation. And what Bohr and Heisenberg emphasized is that when you use the word physical reality or the expression physical reality, you must be referring to to the system under observation together with the means by which the observation is undertaken inseparably cannot separate the two. We can only talk about nature as she is observed. One can put this in the form of a, what appears to be a paradoxical statement, namely that it's impossible for any observation to reveal what character nature might have when it is not observed. One of the results of this is that We now have to make a distinction between empirical reality, which is what Bernard d'Espagne has called reality referred to man. That is, by empirical reality, we mean those aspects of nature that we have an experience of through an experiment, through a measurement, through an observation. And against this, we have to introduce the notion of a primitive reality that we might think of as existing independently of human observers. What quantum mechanics says is that we can't say anything about that primitive reality. As a result, we have to see science in two different roles. First of all, the theories of science constitute systems of knowledge about empirical reality, and then secondly, they constitute systems of belief about a primitive reality. So we have to distinguish between scientific knowledge, that we can assert on the basis of direct experience, and systems of belief which can only come into existence on the basis of inductions we make from empirical knowledge. Now that distinction is fundamental in contemporary science, but it didn't exist before quantum mechanics.
3: The acknowledgement of a primitive reality beyond the reach of experimental observation forces a new humility on science and opens up a new role for philosophy. It was in this spirit that Sir James Jeans once noted that the great achievement of modern physics was neither relativity nor quantum theory, but the recognition that science is not in contact with ultimate reality. Philosophy enters contemporary science in other ways as well. Ian Stewart, for example, has identified the role of what he calls primitives in physical theory. These are the terms which define the theory, but themselves remain undefined
1: it does seem to me that there are amazingly widespread indications that the primitive concepts have an effect on the meaning of the theories that we commonly overlook. We can give a mathematical definition of a particular type, several particular types of order or particular types of randomness, but there's no mathematical definition of randomness itself. There's no mathematical definition of order itself. And in that respect it's very interesting and I think important to bear in mind that while each of the laws of physics describes a particular kind of order, there is no physical theory of order itself. And perhaps one of the underlying sources of the difficulties, the conceptual difficulties we now face, is that very absence in physics of a theory of order, of organization, of how it comes to be created and maintained in the universe. We have recipes for particular kinds of order, but not a general theory of order itself.
3: Ian Stewart's point is again well illustrated from the case of quantum mechanics. The formal mathematics of the theory constitutes no more than what Dr. Stewart calls a recipe, To say what the theory means still requires interpretation, and this must be done in ordinary, informal language. For theoretical physicist David Bohm, this highlights the importance of communication in the scientific process. He cites the cautionary example of Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein, who could never agree on the correct interpretation of quantum mechanics.
6: Since science is communication, a failure of communication may be very serious. For example, there was a failure of communication of Bohr and Einstein. You see, Bohr had one view of what truth is, Einstein another. They were very good friends in the beginning, but they kept on disagreeing, and all they could do is repeat their positions without a real dialogue. Neither of them could negotiate or consider the other person's position seriously and try to move on from there. So it ended up they had nothing to say to each other, you see, and and in fact, uh, once... uh, they were both at Princeton together at the Institute for Advanced Study, and Hermann Weil thought it was a pity they weren't talking to each other, so he invited both of them and their students to a party. So uh, Einstein and his students stayed at one end of the room and Bohr and his at the other, they, because they had nothing to say, right? Therefore, communication is essential to the very structure of science. Now, the informal language plays a very big part. Bohr and Einstein didn't disagree about the mathematics. They both agreed that it was right, but they disagreed on the informal language. Now, since communication is essential here, any change in the informal language is going to have a profound effect. You see, people tend to have very powerful, strong opinions on the informal language and hold to them and really get angry about them or disturbed, or else they will simply hold to them so thoroughly they don't even talk to each other. This informal language has a, is not just in the field of um, Physics, but it affects the whole motivation of a person very profoundly if he takes physics seriously. And his whole being is affected by it. You see, it's not uh, just a technical question. Therefore, the ability to uh, uh, change the informal language requires a change in the being of the physicist. You see, we are all trained to stick to our basic informal assumptions about the nature of reality. I mean people find it extremely hard to change them when they're questioned, physicists included. And the ability to change these would be a profound change in human nature. For David Bohm,
3: any scientific theory is rooted in a worldview which necessarily involves the whole being of the scientist. Science is thus a thoroughly philosophical activity. The problem, as Robert Rosen points out, is that scientists have not always wished to
5: recognize this. We have been in some sense in science, uh, much too limited in the things that we would allow into our world, that our philosophical basis has been too narrow. It's always been said that the philosophy of science is the philosophy of physics. I think that is going to change radically in the next 50 years. It's already beginning to happen. And with this change, this shift away from the idea of a, a simple mechanism and the idea that everything arises out of wheels turning within wheels, we are going to come to a much more holistic, much more open picture of the behavior of things in the world. We're coming back to what was the idea of a natural philosophy. In Aristotle's time, or even in the uh, 17th or 16th century, uh, there was no big distinction between physics and biology and mathematics, philosophy. It was all one. And the person interested in why things were what they were uh, was a natural philosopher, whether he took a theological point of view, philosophical or, or more what we would call now scientific point of view, people could talk to each other then. I think uh, with the shift away from this physical paradigm, the idea of uh, mechanism, the idea of reductionism, I really think that philosophy and theology, the way we look at ourselves, the way we look at our societies, will also have to change radically. The telos will become, once again, I think a central ingredient in trying to understand and trying to control, manipulate ourselves and our social structures. And basically that's what philosophy is for, that's what theology is for. and Science is the tool, or has been thought of as the tool, which allows these things to be done properly. Uh, We haven't done it very well, partly because we've been so bound by these ideas of mechanism and particular ways of system description. But uh, as I say, biology is going to force this to change, it's already forcing it to change. Physics will change, and with it I think natural philosophy will re-emerge as one whole thing, not fragmented up into little bits and pieces, uh, all trying to imitate physics. <laughs>
3: first half of tonight's program I have tried to present evidence that science has begun to move beyond the mechanical philosophy to which it owed its first successes. I have been able to do that of course by carefully selecting voices from a small vanguard but the changes I believe are potentially there. Science is moving towards a worldview which is more humble, more unified, more philosophical and more at home with complexity. But what of religion the other half of my theme. In the first program of this series, I argued that religion played a very major role in shaping classical science. That argument is briefly summarized in this statement by physicist David Bohm.
6: The present form of science is due in a large measure to a peculiar alliance between theology and science during the 17th century, when theologians felt it necessary to defend themselves against various views like rosicrucianism and alchemy and magic which sort of gave uh, vitality and life to matter they wanted to say that only god had it and matter was dead mechanical created by god only man would have spirit this tied up with the uh, interest of scientists in developing a mechanistic explanation so they sort of divided the field and said science can deal with mechanism and uh, god is beyond all that possibly the human spirit is beyond it but As science developed, it gradually began to incorporate the areas that religion had set off for itself, so that gradually it began to make the whole aim of religion implausible, and I think that's where we are in the modern
3: era. The original accommodation between science and Christian theology, that peculiar alliance, as David Bohm calls it, was based on the doctrine of the two books, the Book of Scripture and the Book of Nature, both authored by God but each requiring independent investigation by independent means. As Dr. Philip Hefner of the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago argues, it was an arrangement chosen by the theologians as much as by the scientists. Theological
2: leaders steadfastly refused to accept the fact that science makes a difference for theological understandings that it really does make a difference. The two books theory does not allow science to make a difference for theology, or vice versa. It's, a, it's part of that compartmentalizing accommodation that I think we've made, which still stands as the most influential way of understanding religion and science today, both among religious people and among uh, non-religious people.
3: The idea of the two books initially led to a very vital natural theology. The study of nature was considered by both scientists and amateur naturalists to be a pious activity. And in the intricate machinery of the natural world, both found sure evidence of the creator's designing hand. But science meanwhile, continued to improve its capacity to account for things in purely mechanical and naturalistic terms. Religion was thus driven away from nature, and towards a view of salvation as a process occurring outside of the world. The result, according to Father Thomas Berry, was an undue emphasis on the idea of fall and redemption.
7: This has to do with the, a sense of the world as something needs to be redeemed with the human, that there is a pervasive guilt. Uh, from which uh, the human needs to be redeemed, and that redemption is the primary objective of religion. Well, this again uh, leaves a person without the type of interest in the world. The world uh, is looked upon as under a condemnation, and therefore it's difficult to get that interested in the world. If you believe that the world, uh, that we need to be saved out of the world, rather than to enter into the dynamics of the world. So my suggestion is that we move more into a creationist position, that perhaps we put the Bible on the shelf for 20 years and begin to read the scripture of the natural world and enter into the dynamics of the natural world because the primary scripture, the primary revelation, the primary divine manifestation is the natural world and verbal revelation follows on the revelatory impact of the natural world. And to enter into this creativity that's taking place in the natural world or throughout the universe is the, the primary element
3: in uh, what I would call the religious life. The creativity of nature, of course, was precisely what classical science was unable to recognize. In league with a theology bent on establishing the omnipotence of God, science turned nature into mindless mechanism. The world was at most a stage on which the divine drama of fall and redemption was played. It had no intrinsic significance. Dr. Philip Hefner. What
2: significance does the world have to God? That really is one of the most interesting questions I uh, can ask my theological students. Because most of them have not thought about it, and it's difficult. What significance does the world have to God? Now traditionally, the attitude has been, well, God loves the world so much that uh, God sent uh, Jesus Christ. But God really doesn't need the world. Uh, if The world it's popular to quote the Westminster Confessions, which says, I would gladly burn to the glory of God or the view that many people hold that uh, life on this earth really is only a test. And uh, depending on what grade you get on the test, you go to heaven or you go to hell. That takes the cosmos seriously in one sense. It says life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. But it doesn't really take the cosmos uh, seriously as having any intrinsic worth or making a difference. And I I think that that perhaps is is one of the most important intellectual and spiritual trends that we see in the last couple of hundred years, namely that we're not content to say that this world and, and worldly life is insignificant. We're not content to say it doesn't make a difference.
3: So what are the implications for theology of a world that makes a difference? For Philip Hefner, it involves first of all taking science seriously, and that means theologians must reflect on the cosmological process as science discovers it. We have
2: to consider that the process itself must be important to God. Another way of saying that is to say the, the process itself must be given a theological interpretation. If there is ultimacy, if there is ultimate value, then the the ultimate value is in the cosmic process. We really don't have any sense that there is another space we go to. Our, our souls fly to another area and that is the, the the location of ultimate values. Whatever salvation there is for us in the future has to be interpreted as our participation in the future of the universe. You know, if you want to put it this way, we are part of the salvation of the radiation that emerged at T minus 43 seconds after the Big Bang. Uh, Homo sapiens on planet Earth is uh, the future and perhaps part of the redemption of previous forms in the evolutionary process. Now, we're talking about 16 billion years ago. So we should be quite ready to flip forward 16 billion years and say uh, the redemption that we have will uh, be worked out in the future of the process. And there's no reason to believe that the process ever ends in a literal sense. I mean, why, why should this cosmic process especially if you think there's some merit to the theories that this is not the first of the universes, but that there's been a succession of universes. Why would it? There can be an end, you know, end means two things. End means fundamental purpose or goal, and end means termination point. People who believe in God believe there is an end in the sense of goal and fundamental meaning. I don't see that we're necessarily obligated to believe that there's a termination. And redemption and salvation will be uh, interpreted in ways that are consistent with that understanding.
3: The attempt to interpret physical cosmology in theological terms leads in the direction of what Father Thomas Berry calls the new story, the scientific history of the universe recounted in the spirit of myth.
7: It seems to me that the various cultures of the world are founded basically in some uh, story of the cosmos, a story of how the world came to be in the first place, and then how it came to be as it is, and that ultimately narrative is our way into intelligibility. Even science culminates in narrative, in the story of the universe. So that if a person were to try to identify what science has achieved, in the simplest terms, it would be the discovery of the new story of the universe known
3: by empirical observation. What has been the consequence of our failure to see science as myth?
7: Well, when we failed to see the mythic aspect of science, then we began to get a mechanistic approach to the universe and to end up in meaninglessness. So that the scientists uh, are beginning to discover their, the mythic aspect of what they're doing. And this is a great moment in the whole development of the scientific understanding. Uh, the, uh, the basic idea of now, as regards the scientific uh, investigation is that it's an interaction of the subjectivity of mind and the objective world, and that these are interacting with each other and producing something that we call science or we call knowledge. But uh, the scientist has has become aware of the fact that their knowledge is at least as much subjective as objective.
3: For Tom Berry, what science has finally achieved is of fundamental religious significance. In telling the new story of the universe, science, in effect, provides the ritual context for future religious celebration. The
7: planet itself is the pri- provides the primary ritual. The universe is ritual celebration, so we don't have to invent the celebration. We have to enter into it, and I and that the the natural and all religions uh, ordered their ritual according to the liturgy of the universe. So all I'm suggesting is that we go back to our original experience, and which is the comprehensive experience of all peoples. But we need now need to add to seasonal celebration. We need to celebrate uh, historical moments in the emergent evolutionary process, like the shaping of the sun, like the origin of the planet Earth, or the moment when life was born. We've never celebrated because we never knew uh, how these things came into being. Now we know we should celebrate them. Origin moments are sacred moments. That's why we celebrate birthdays. And we should celebrate the birthday of life, the appearance of life in, uh, in its elementary form. We should celebrate the, the birth of the planet. We should celebrate the birth of the, uh, of the flowers. The flowers we know now pretty well. When flowers came into being, the flower revolution, there was a the whole revolution of the whole earth when flowers came into being about 100 million years ago. There were no angiosperms before that. And when the flowers came, then the ferns retreated back onto the margins and the flowers took over. And except for the flowers, the flowering things that had seeds and protein foods, humans could never have been born. Flowers were essential for humans to be born. We don't celebrate it, though. Why not? It certainly is a stupendous religious event. So our sense of religion has been so attenuated that we don't even respond to the most elementary and most powerful modes in which religions, uh, religious experience takes place. So uh, all I suggest is that we recover our religious sensitivities. If we do that, then all our problems are solved. <laughs>
3: So far in tonight's program, we have examined the possible grounds for a reconciliation between religion and science. But it is not finally religion and science which need to be unified. It is the individual human being who experiences a conflict between them. Tonight's program concludes, therefore, with reflections on this theme by Dr. Jacob Needleman, a teacher of philosophy at San Francisco State University, and Dr. Ravi Ravindra, of the Department of Religion at Dalhousie University. First, Dr. Needleman.
8: First of all, let's when we say science and religion, again, let's emphasize that we have to know what we're referring to. There are many kinds of things called science, and there are many kinds of things called religion. Just putting it bluntly, there's just as much stupid science as there is stupid religion. And stupid science and stupid religion can never harmonize with each other. That's why they're st- one of the reasons why they're stupid. But real science, I would call real science, a science that is based on sensitivity and, and objectivity in a deeper sense of the term, and real religion, which comes out of a source of, of great knowledge and, and understanding, are dealing, sometimes you could say, they're dealing with different aspects of the to- the whole of reality. Some, science sometimes can be said, I'm not thinking now of stupid science, but science sometimes is interested only in the material aspect of something without claiming that that's the whole of it. When it's doing that, it's fine. It's saying the body of man is related to the body of animals in this particular configuration and so forth and so on and we have evidence over the period of time that x animal came before y animal who then came there and then there appears man i don't think in principle there's anything to argue against that but if that's if they then claim that by that is what we mean by man then they are it's becoming stupid science religion is speaking in a different kind of language very often it's speaking symbolically It's speaking imagistically. It's speaking in a language that touches the heart and feeling of the mind, and not just the computer part of the mind. And in that sense, if if you follow me so far in that sense, we are speaking about two parts of the mind again. And those parts of the mind, the part that needs to organize external data through theories called knowledge, through the information received, that part of the mind is very necessary to functioning in a physical world, and science is damn good at letting us function, on a, at least on a local level. But there's another part of the mind that has to do with integrating the whole of myself and moving me towards some higher thing called God. Science and religion, in that sense, can only be really integrated when those parts of ourselves are integrated. You cannot integrate science and religion externally, through new theories, through new philosophies. You can only integrate those two impulses through in oneself becoming integrated in their functions. And that is the job of a real spiritual discipline. Dr. Ravi Ravindra. It is really always in the single human
9: soul which is the locus, appropriate and proper locus for any reconciliation of whether it's science and religion, or harmony of our own different parts, we have our feelings say something, our mind says something, the body says something, or whether it's the coming together of the major aspirations of a culture, all of this, in fact, really takes place only when these things are not considered abstractly as science is something, saying something, religion is saying something, The moment we consider them abstractly, immediately we begin to talk about certain religious ideas and we compare and contrast them with scientific ideas. Those are mere abstractions. The fundamental issue is how do these affect a given human being in his concreteness? A human being who has scientific aspirations and who also has philosophical ideas, who also has occasionally or sometimes more seriously questions about the meaning and purpose of his own life, his destiny, then one sees that the wholeness that one is really talking about is the integrity of man.
0: Religion and the New Science was written and presented by David Cayley. Technical operations were by Brian Hill. Production by Jill Eisen, with the assistance of Alison Moss. Transcripts of this three-part series are available for $5. If you'd like to order a copy, write Science and Religion, CBC Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. Please enclose a check or money order for $5. Please don't send cash through the mail. And we've also prepared a reading list, free, to supplement this series. Write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. Join us again tomorrow night when we conclude our series on Radical Preachers, Radical Politics. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.